0: Oh, it's the end of the first day of practicing together in this way. And I'd like to talk about a few things tonight, but basically about wise effort or meditative effort. Because usually it's somewhat of a big question after having practiced for the day. You know, one big question is what is wise effort? The other big question is why am I here? So. <laughs> I'll try to weave it in, but, um, basically, I'm going to talk about wise effort. The Buddha said, "...with wise effort, make for yourself an island that no flood can overwhelm." "...with wise effort, make for yourself an island that no flood can overwhelm." And that is what is possible in practice for us to discover, to realize, an inner island of stability, of calm, of equanimity. An island, or a refuge, or a home that remains still and free amidst the uh, enormous variety of conditions that occur in life. Finding ourselves at home within ourselves, instead of outside ourselves, relying on external situations or conditions to make us happy. This sense of home, or refuge, or an island allows us to be less seduced by conditions in life, and then finding ourselves high and dry because of having been seduced by what appears to be attractive. This island, this home, allows us to be less overwhelmed by the variety of conditions that can occur in life, particularly by our own energies, our own emotions, to really find, discover, realize this inner home. I remember reading something that someone who was homeless wrote some time ago, who didn't have a physical home. And what he said was that, What, to him, was so much worse than not having a physical home? And as we know, not having a physical home is one of the hardest things in life. But what was worse for him was not feeling at home within himself. he, He realized that he was not at ease within himself. He wasn't at home within himself. And I think all of us feel this to some extent. And this is one reason, maybe, why we practice. So a question might be, how is this home realized or recognized? How can there be inner ease, inner comfort, experienced within ourselves and offered to those whom we come in contact with? We realize this inner home through bringing mindfulness to all of our experiences, through being in contact with our life, through being aware of experiences. When we're in contact from moment to moment with our life, with all of our life, and not just with parts of our life. Out of this contact comes wisdom. Out of this contact comes understanding. Without the contact, it's really hard to see things as they are, because we're just going to be caught in our minds, wanting things to be a certain way, wishing things were a certain way, trying to make things be a certain way, and life being life, nature being nature. But what comes out of contact with our actual experience is learning about nature, learning about ourselves, and actually learning how to recognize this inner refuge that is there to be recognized. Letting go of clinging, letting go of identification, is what comes out of understanding or wisdom. We see that we can let go of clinging. We see that we don't need to define ourselves through the experiences that occur in life, whether they're external experiences or whether they are thoughts and emotions, feelings that are happening to us. We see out of wisdom, we notice, we see that we don't need to define who we are or how life is through the various thoughts and emotions that occur. It does take effort to be mindful. Mind- effort is a turning towards the present moment. It takes effort to be in contact, because without effort, we're lost or absorbed in experiences. We're lost and absorbed into phenomena. And so it does take, really sometimes, an enormous amount of effort The Buddha's last words were, Strive on, untiringly, which is (laughs) really a mouthful to leave us with. Uh, So, clearly, an enormous amount of effort is usually necessary to allow for there to be mindfulness that turns into wisdom, that turns into freedom. Effort is an essential aspect, but the question is, what is effort in the context of the meditative path? Because it's very, very different than the effort uh, in the culture, or the effort that we've grown up with, the various kinds of effort that we've learned in our life. I, it's such a, a different thing that i I'm actually... I have a quest to find a, a totally other word than the word effort. Every so often I get little notes with people's suggestions on them, uh, with. Uh, different renditions of this word for effort, but none of them, so feel free, but none of them has, um, uh, I think, is any better than the word effort at the moment. But it really is a totally different thing that's required to come to freedom than is required to do the other things that we engage ourselves in in life. Effort in meditation practice is not the effort to become somebody. It's very much not the effort to um, be someone, it's actually definitely not the effort to become someone else. You know, to try to imitate someone and become that other person. Even someone that we may admire and respect, it's still the effort to see into our own experience, always, and never to try to imitate anyone else. You know, To be guided, perhaps, to listen, to use what we hear. Uh, But not to imitate, because it won't ever be our own experience then. It'll be someone else's experience of freedom. It's not the effort to attain any particular state of mind, because this is just imagination. This kind of effort is just in the realm of imagining a particular state of mind that we want to get, that we want to attain. A state of mind that we may have experienced in the past that we want to have again, a state of mind that we've read about, that we want to get. Yeah. However, which way it comes about? It's all in the realm of imagination and not reality. It also is not the effort to maintain a particular state of mind that happens to arise. You know, bliss happens to occur. Peacefulness happens to occur. Whatever it is happens to occur. To try and maintain it, to try to make it last, is actually delusion. Um, one pushes it way, away even faster than it might go anyway. One is in the realm of trying to make something last that can't last, if we're attempting to maintain a particular state of mind. It's also not the effort to change the contents of consciousness, to push away what we don't like, kind of with the idea, if only this weren't happening, then I could meditate. I was mentioning this morning, for the, those of you who are very experienced, sometimes having that kind of a reference point around particular energies that one comes in contact with, and has seen come and go throughout other retreats, and how easy it is to think, you know, if this would just go away, uh, in a couple of days I'll really be able to meditate, <laughs> that kind of thing, when we can actually only meditate in the here and now. It's only possible to practice right here and right now. Effort is also not the attempt to fix oneself in any way, or to work on oneself, or to try and improve oneself. It's really to see things as they are, to be aware of arisings and passings away, but not to have the idea that we uh, somehow need to work on ourselves, or to fix anything. We're recognizing that which is already natural within each one of us, and letting go of the clouds that surround the heart. We're not trying to change those clouds into something else. We're just allowing ourselves to see what is obscuring the natural luminescence or radiance of the heart. So we also don't need to carry around ideas about perfection, about needing to be perfect. You know, our, our efforts going in the direction of perfection. For one thing, we all have different ideas of what it means to be perfect. Or another thing, if we have ideas about perfection, very easily we'll demand our brand of perfection from others, whatever our brand happens to be. There will be a way that we'll want that, that we'll ask that from others, and there will be a lack of love in that. Non-meditative effort is an effort that is based on attachment, which means trying to make pleasure last longer than it may last on its own. This also might mean trying to make that which is impermanent, permanent. This, This is unwise effort. Phenomena, all elements in life are impermanent. To try to make the impermanent permanent is exhausting and tiring and does not bring freedom. Non-meditative effort is an effort that is based or conditioned by the culture. It's based on agendas and ideas rather than on reality. It's based on what we already know, instead of allowing for an openness to receive that which we don't know. You know, and we can look, we can notice that if our effort is based on what we know from moment to moment, um, we have to ask, "Has has it brought us what we want? you know has it has it really brought a lasting sense of ease that which really is beyond conditions and beyond phenomena always the sense of i am going somewhere in time is non-meditative effort whenever we have this sense of my practice you know, the past practice that we've had in extending this into the future and having this idea of i I am going somewhere, I am developing, I am going to be enlightened at some further point in time. You know, whenever we're kind of caught by the sense of time, we've forgotten to practice. We've forgotten in that moment what true effort is. The effort that really does bear fruit has been lost. Remembering that some kind of effort is always happening from moment to moment. Always effort is occurring. Just to be alive, just to have a body, and to have a mind, uh, takes an awful lot of effort. Just to get up in the morning and to feed oneself and to live, takes a lot of effort. So effort is always happening. But the question is, what direction is it going in? This is really quite crucial. Is it going in the direction of true ease and true refuge? Or is it going in the direction of perpetuating the difficulty, the angst. In our efforts, are we trying simply to avoid discomfort or to avoid conflict? Are our efforts based on fear, on avoidance, on trying to get rid of? These kinds of efforts really are not the kinds of efforts that lead us to peace, that lead us to freedom. A meditative effort is an effort that doesn't have anything to do with that which is right, or that which is wrong, or ideas of success, or ideas of failure. Wise effort, meditative effort, has only to do with suffering and the end of suffering. And this is a radical difference and a radical change. In other words, seeing, are our efforts going in the direction of letting go of suffering? Are our efforts going into the direction of perpetuating suffering? And this is really what we want to see. Meditative effort is letting go of the kinds of efforts I just mentioned. It is truly the effort to be aware in this moment. It's so easy. You know? It's just that we forget over and over again, and we're so conditioned to strive and to push and to try the other kinds of efforts that I mentioned because we're so used to it. But to remember that meditative effort, the effort that bears fruit, the effort that brings freedom, is the effort to be aware, the effort to be receptive, the effort to be available from moment to moment with life as it's happening in the present moment. Letting go of everything else and allowing ourselves over and over again to drop into the here and now, to allow for awareness. To allow for awareness. The ordinary mind is a mind that is lost in experience. By the ordinary mind, I mean the mind that is untrained, that is not oriented in this direction, is a mind that is lost in experience, a mind that obeys instinct and is absorbed into phenomena. Where we're not aware of phenomena, we're absorbed into it. And of course, life is going to be enormously rocky because phenomena comes and goes and changes enormously from moment to moment. If we're attached to what it is that's happening, if we need something to be happening and we can't have something be happening, our life is going to be lived in a very unbalanced way. Absorbing into uh, whatever it is that is occurring uh, is a very uh, rocky road. Whereas, a meditative mind is a mind that is aware of experiences. Not detached, not, not in contact with experiences, not backing away, but a mind that is aware, is actually connected, in contact with the experience that's happening in the present moment, observing our reactions to what it is that's happening, being aware of the reactions that are occurring. Learning, wise effort, has to do with learning to relate skillfully to our life, to what it is that is occurring. Asking the question, instead of, how can I get more of what I'm experiencing right now, or how can I get less of what I'm experiencing right now, how can I get rid of what I am experiencing right now, or thinking that one is what I am experiencing right now, the question might be instead, how am I relating to this? How am I relating to what is happening right now? And then one might also ask, is it possible to be aware of this? You don't want to presume anything of yourself or demand anything of yourself. But certainly to ask the question, is it possible to be aware of this as well? Because some things we have a really easy time being aware of. Other things we think are How things are, or how we are, and we're not aware. So, really, simply to ask this question: Is it possible to be aware of this? Letting go to some extent of the what, and very much at this point, letting go of the why. You know, it's not that the what is not important, because we do need to recognize what's happening. The what is important, and we we need to know what's occurring in our minds, in our hearts, in our bodies. But the why uh, is really something that we can go over, and over, and over on, inwardly spinning. And most of the time is best left alone. I mean, there's, there's so much um, freedom that can occur in simply noticing how conditioned we are, and how habitual it is to figure things out, to try to figure out what's happening. Usually we don't try to figure out what's happening when something nice is happening. You know, when something pleasurable is happening, or when we're feeling very calm and very peaceful, we don't usually worry about it or try to figure it out. You know, maybe when it starts to slip away, then we start to get a little concerned. But we do tend to think about why something is happening and to worry about why something is happening when something difficult is occurring, when something unpleasant is occurring. And so I would suggest seeing if it's possible to let go of that big chunk of why. Of course, the why sometimes arises on its own when you leave it alone in meditation. And that's an interesting thing. You can't want it because it won't happen. But if you can leave it alone and not pay so much attention to the why, uh, sometimes it does arise. We do see something. now. Sometimes this is a little bit of insight that arises. The why uh, is translated through a little bit of insight, uh, which is certainly a grace and is not something that we can force or make happen. So meditative effort, wise effort, effort that bears fruit, bears the fruit of freedom, is the effort to be present. It's not to judge or to assess the contents of of consciousness. It's not to look and to try to assess whether peace is happening or whether agitation is happening. It's really to ask if there is a clear intention of being aware or not. In this moment, is there the clear intention to be aware? In this moment, is there the clear intention to be awake to life, to be awake to the experience happening right now? Seeing if we can use our efforts that we may habitually use to judge our experiences, to judge whatever it is that's happening, because. Certainly, certainly the effort it takes to judge is immense and huge, to take all of those efforts that we may use to judge what's happening, use to judge our experiences, for awareness instead. Uh, because when we do this, what happens is discernment, not being passive or you know, foolish or we have to judge or else um, you know, we'll get stepped on or we won't know anything or we'll forget this or we'll forget that. Now, certainly, discernment is, and wisdom, uh, you know, has to come out of practice, but that's so different than judging and assessing and evaluating our experiences. So is it possible to use that huge chunk of um, effort that is tied up oftentimes in judging experiences, and to put it into seeing if it's possible to be aware instead, to be aware of experiences instead? perhaps remembering it's it's so helpful to know in the practice what we need to be responsible for and what is out of our control and this is really quite crucial what we do need to be responsible for because nobody else is going to do it for us is our efforts this clear intention to be present the effort to turn towards the present moment over and over again this is a power that we have. This is something that we really can creatively work with in practice. However, what happens is out of our control. The results of our efforts is not up to us. This is really where we have to let go and allow ourselves to be held, to recognize that our efforts and our earnestness is bringing us in the right direction, but really to take refuge in the fact that we're going in the right direction. And that's really all we need to be concerned about. We don't know how the practice is, gonna be, is going to evolve. And we can't demand that there will be particular results because of our efforts. We can have the trust and the faith that there will. But that's very, very different than having a, a sense of time of, OK, I'll be aware in this moment, and so in the next moment, this should be experienced. You know, kind of a negotiating with life, a negotiating with, with the practice. I mean, it sounds really silly, but we do do that. We think, if I'm attentive now, why isn't this happening? And then we feel disappointed and resent, resent, feel a certain degree of resentment. And so remembering that we can take responsibility for our efforts, how things evolve, how the practice evolves, is out of our control. Resistance in practice is really something to look at, because it's really quite common to everyone in practice. It really is a very big part of the practice to come to learn and explore and develop different ways of being able to work skillfully with resistance, rather than to take it as a personal insult or to see it as a personal problem. You know, there's this um, uh, teacher who uh, used to roll uh, beaties, cigarettes, in, in India. And um, that's not all he did. He also got enlightened. But um, he said that uh, we resist every step along the way to enlightenment. You know, Each step along the way to enlightenment we resist. So it's certainly not something to take personally, to see as a personal problem. And on retreats, um, resistance is bound to arise. Now, maybe you look back on this day and you think, oh, it was okay, you know, there wasn't that much resistance. But then, when you look in a closer way, um, one, everyone sees certain degrees of resistance. You know, Or maybe you see big chunks of resistance when, when you look more closely. Maybe you see during an entire sitting each, you know, the entire sitting was a sitting of resistance. Or an entire walking, which was a walking schedule, but you didn't do the walking, was maybe uh, experience of resistance. You know, in, in other words, um, resistance really is part of the practice. And retreats are, to some extent, controlled um, experiences of suffering. So they're great situations in which to see our resistance. You know, Of course, it's not to come on a retreat and to just suffer. But because, please, <laughs> but because we're so used to distracting ourselves, in this kind of a situation, we're just left with ourselves, basically. It's just, you know, the practice is kind of just set up. It's really just... In, in other words, the practice is, is really kind of nothing. It's really an experience of being with ourselves, with nothing else happening. So being able to bring awareness without the usual kinds of distractions and responsibilities that we may have in our life, uh, and to see if we can, through bringing awareness to our experiences allow for conditioning to dissolve, to soften, and to dissolve. We don't want to try and overpower resistance when it's occurring. We want to see if we can simply observe it, notice it. We also don't want to follow its bidding, you know, to do what it says we think it thinks we should do, because resistance has no drop of wisdom in it at all. It's really Resistance is just instinct. You know, it's really wanting. Naturally, of course, it's wanting comfort. It's wanting pleasure. It's wanting some sense of ease, when that's not what's happening in the present moment. So we don't want to follow its call. We don't want to follow its bidding or obey it in any way, um, because this strengthens it. But in trying to overpower it, pretend it's not happening, I think it shouldn't be happening, this strengthens it as well. So is it possible to befriend resistance, to see if we can get to know resistance a little bit more, to see if we can um, know it more so that we don't have to either follow its bidding or try to overpower it, but instead be aware of resistance as it's occurring. Get to know it in the body, get to know its voices, its um, call in the mind. See if we can form a new relationship with resistance other than, different than, our old relationship with it. Recognizing that it is natural, and it's not a bad sign. It's saying nothing at all about your practice. The fact that you're feeling resistance is saying nothing at all about your practice. Not good, not bad. Just simply that resistance is occurring. And so, is it possible to befriend it? Is it possible to be aware that it's occurring? On retreats, we do come into contact with a variety of different energies, which is the same as our daily life. It's just that it is harder to distract ourselves from these energies here. One of the energies that we come in contact with quite easily is the energy of yearning, the energy of longing, of wanting, of hunger. One can have just have looked forward to lunch all day, and have lunch, and feel very full inside, and yet still be very hungry. Now, this is the hungry mind. It's a mental, emotional state of hunger. Sometimes it feels very pleasant. There's, you know, very, very extremely wonderful fantasies that can occur when there is this hunger. Sometimes it feels quite unpleasant, and there's a sense of deprivation occurring. But what is important with this energy of yearning is not to get lost in the object of the yearning. Because this is like getting on a train that we have no idea where it's going. So getting on a train and you know, enjoying the comfort of the train. Uh, the conductor's a really nice person, and the food is really great, and it's really clean, and it's very luxurious, and we're having really a good time. The only problem is that the train arrives in a different place than we expected to go. So then we have to get back on the train, you know, in comfort. But it really uh, is a waste of time. It really slows things down. If we follow this hunger, it pulls us out of the moment into our imagination. A meditative effort in the face of the hungry mind in the face of yearning, in the face of longing, is to be aware of the longing, to be aware of the source rather than of the object. Instead of getting absorbed in what we want, in what we have to have, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, it's never going to take us where we want to go. So instead of getting absorbed in the object itself, seeing if we can be aware of the hunger, of the longing, instead of judging, and instead of dwelling. We come in contact at times with aversion, with irritation, with anger at times. Oftentimes, aversion appears in the form of conversations. I don't know if you've noticed this yourself, but oftentimes, one finds oneself involved in a dialogue with somebody that one is upset with. And, you know, there can be sort of a a pleasant quality to this while we're saying what we have always wanted to say to that person. But then it becomes quite unpleasant when we have a memory of what they said to us that caused the anger to begin with. To notice these dialogues, to be aware of these inner conversations, is what is quite important. When there is aversion, when there is anger. It can get pointed towards ourselves. We can get quite upset with ourselves. And in this particular situation, it can get pointed towards others. Uh, Somebody named Gladys asked the renowned uh, Zen meditation master named Tofu Roshi this question. Dear Tofu Roshi, at a long retreat, you get to know people really well in a certain way. You get to know their physical presence, how they walk, and bow, and chew their food, if they do chew. Well, here is my problem. When I go to a long retreat, instead of becoming more open and loving as the retreat progresses, I become more and more critical of the sentient beings around me. At our last retreat, there was a man who, after each step in walking meditation, would nod his head with satisfaction, as if congratulating himself for being so holy. And there was a woman who, when she pressed her palms together to bow, crooked her little fingers as if she was drinking tea at Windsor Castle. At such times, I am choked by rage. <laughs> I want to break things. I flush with hot anger at every ladylike or self-satisfied nod. Did you ever feel this way? In my normal life, I'm a fairly nice person. <laughs> Sincerely, Gladys. Dear Gladys, once I had a student who could not stop from plucking tiny wool balls off her sweater all during zazen. She provided us with an opportunity to practice patience and tolerance. One day I noticed with some relief that she had finally rendered her sweater completely threadbare. But she arrived the next day in a new sweater and began work on it. <laughs> About halfway through a long retreat, in order to facilitate the release of tension such as you describe, I often have the community joined together in a sort of modified game of charades in which each person takes a turn to imitate the irritating foibles of another while the onlookers guess what is being impersonated. We all feel much closer to each other after that. (laughs) Don't worry, (laughs) we're not going to do it. (laughs) But this kind of thing, it it can happen in a retreat that uh, life is being colored by aversion. Life is being colored by irritation. And so the irritation begins by being directed towards ourselves, and then it just touches everything the eyes alight upon or everything the mind alights upon, you know, whether it's someone here or whether it's one's whole entire world. And it's so important to see this cloudiness, to see this coloration as it's occurring. Being aware of aversion is our practice not to judge, not to try to get rid of, and not to dwell. To judge, to try to get rid of, to dwell strengthens aversion. Another energy that we come in contact with is restlessness, or worry, anxiety, nervousness. Sometimes we experience a certain degree of restlessness that we didn't know that we ever had, because we can be so attached to being very speedy in our lives. And so then we come in this kind of an environment, and we have to slow down. And so there are a lot of reverberations of restlessness. But other times, that's really just the energy that we're very, very familiar with in our life, anxiety, restlessness, worry. And so what better time to attend to it with loving attention instead of perpetuating it by judging it, by trying to get rid of it, by trying to push it away, or by thinking that we have a reason to worry. And I'm not at all saying that there aren't real reasons to worry. However, worrying is not a way to find our way out of anything. And here we are. You know, not being able to do anything in this environment, and not being able to change anything that may need to be changed in our life. So instead of dwelling on the source of the worry, is it possible, I'm I'm sorry, on the object of the worry, is it possible to be aware of the source? Is it possible to pay attention to the heart? To be aware of the physical sensations of anxiety? to be aware of the physical sensations of what happens when worrying is occurring, what happens when anxiety is occurring, what happens when nervousness is occurring. Can we allow there to be a kind attentiveness brought to this very difficult energy instead of thinking that if we worry enough about it, we'll figure it out? This really doesn't happen. It really doesn't happen, even if it is valid to worry about. And oftentimes, after some days, we see that what we were worrying about was really not worth our brain cells at all, really not worth our time, really not worth our heart, putting our heart into such a thing. So seeing if we can be aware of the source of worry, of the source of anxiety. And I don't mean by this the reason why. What I mean is a very kind and gentle attentiveness to the heart a very kind and gentle um, attentiveness to how anxiety or worry or nervousness or agitation is manifesting itself in the body, being aware of anxiety on the level of the body. Meditative effort in the realm of anxiety, agitation, is to be aware, not to judge, not to think that it shouldn't be happening, not to that there's something wrong with your practice, because there is the arising of anxiety, it is out of one's control, it is conditioned, not to dwell, and to see if it's possible to be aware. Another energy we come in contact with is sleepiness, which everyone knows well after having spent the day today. I, I do feel curious, is there anyone who wasn't at all sleepy throughout the day today, at all? Okay, (laughs) so this is one, oh, not you, right? (laughs) Seriously not. Okay, all right, so one out of um, however many of us are here. You know, it's, it's a very common experience to have happen. A heaviness, a dullness, an inertia, a sense of kind of being fuzzy or out of focus. There being a sense of not having enough energy to be aware, not having enough energy to sit still not having enough energy to walk the whole walking period. It's often experienced when um, things are neutral and we don't quite know what to do with neutrality. It's also often experienced when um, our experience is not one that we want to have. You know, usually when we're experiencing a lot of pleasure or bliss or happiness, we're kind of awake for it, you know? (laughs) Most of the time, we're pretty much awake when things are, are good. Um, so oftentimes there is aversion when there's this vague sense of discomfort or discontent occurring. And we very much want to see if we can be aware of this energy without judging it, without thinking it shouldn't be happening, without taking it on as a personal problem. And at the same time, um, not dwelling. And you know, in the case of sleepiness, not dwelling oftentimes means stand up. You know? oftentimes. Um, dwelling in it, dwelling in sleepiness, occurs when it feels really pleasant and comfortable, and it's easier than putting the energy out. And the bell's going to ring sooner. And there's a certain kind of, you know, pleasure about it. When it's pleasurable, it really is a good idea to stand up and continue the practice in the standing posture. However, oftentimes sleepiness is not what we think should be happening, and there is quite a bit of unpleasantness, of aversion to it. And in this case, to be aware of resistance, to be aware of aversion, to be aware of thinking that it shouldn't be happening, to be aware of defining who we are by the fact that sleepiness is occurring. Meditative effort in the realm of sleepiness is to be aware. It's not to dwell, it's not to judge, is to see if we can be aware, clearly aware of unclarity, clearly aware of fuzziness. It is possible. We don't need an enormous amount of energy to be aware of sleepiness. You know, all we need to do is to feel it fully, to experience it fully, to not push it away, and to not indulge in it. And then there really will be awareness. The last energy that oftentimes we're in contact with on a retreat is that of doubt. Doubt is really interesting. Because sometimes, in our daily practice, we don't experience any doubt. And maybe that's what gets us to come here over and over again, you know, is that we don't have doubt in the practice. But it is a fairly common experience to experience a lot of doubt once you get here. Or experience some degree of doubt once you get here. And it can kind of be a little bit of a surprise if you're used to not feeling it. And one can feel a little bit unbalanced because doubt is happening or take it more seriously than one might usually take it, because it's not something that one is familiar with in one's daily practice. However, it is one of those energies that we bump into until it's gone. At some point in practice, doubt truly does disappear. But that can be a really long time coming. So in the meantime, to not take it personally, to not judge it to see if we can be aware of this energy of doubt, to not allow it to undermine us, to not allow it to take away our energy. With doubt, sometimes we can spend a lot of time weighing the different possibilities or weighing the different options we have. You know, in America, we have a million different options, even for practice, you know? So we can have experienced some other kind of practice, and when we're doing this, weigh our option of what other lineage we should be in. You know, of course, when we're in that lineage, then maybe we want to be here. Weighing our options in terms of what technique we want to use. For those of you who have been around for quite a while, there's a million techniques. You pick up any book, and that one book collides with another book. And of course, always, this is the best technique, whatever book you're reading, or whatever's being offered. You know, and so there can be a colliding occurring. But to see if it's possible to commit to the uh, technique that you're actually engaged in, you know, to see if it's possible to not let these options and these possibilities undermine you, simply because you always want to get behind what you're doing. That's what's so necessary in life, to allow ourselves to get behind what it is that we're engaged in, what it is that we're doing, so that we don't live a divided life so that we live a whole life, so that we live a life of fullness. So meditative effort in the realm of doubt is to be aware of doubt, is to not dwell, is to not judge, is to not judge the fact that doubt is occurring, is to not dwell in doubt, which means allowing doubting thoughts to carry one away time after time again, but instead of paying attention to the object to what the doubt has to do with. Instead, seeing if we can be aware of the source of the doubt. You know, if it's self-doubt, being aware in the body, in the heart, that doubt is occurring. See if we can notice, if we can be aware, doubt is occurring in this moment. Not giving it a past, not offering it a future, but simply being aware in this moment doubt is happening. And in that way, we will be able to notice all of these energies as clouds, as veils over the natural radiance, the natural luminescence of the heart. Retreats are full of a variety of ups and a variety of downs, and the reason for this is because life is full of a variety of ups and a variety of downs. It just can seem a little bit more vivid um, being in an environment where we don't have our usual distractions occurring. To understand our life, to understand what is actually happening, we do need to get close to things. We do need to get close to our life. And this is what is possible in this environment, because nothing else is happening. It is possible to use our efforts, to use our energies, to get close to ourselves, to not waste our energies in trying to make something happen, in trying to become someone, in trying to imitate, in trying to accomplish something. But we can really use the full force of effort in the direction of understanding, seeing if we can understand our life, because it is understanding that brings us to freedom. And understanding comes about through contact, intimacy, with what it is that is happening in the here and now. Being with the breath helps us to sustain our contact with everything in life. If we can commit ourselves to the breath, if we can commit ourselves to sustaining contact with the in-breath from its beginning to its end, to sustaining contact with the out-breath from its beginning to its end, to sustaining our contact with the breathing, whether we're able to or not, but the commitment being important, you know, the effort piece being really important. If we are able to commit ourselves in this way, we will learn how to sustain our attention on everything on the most difficult of emotions that arise, on the most difficult of situations that we find ourselves in, because we really are training our minds. We really are strengthening our hearts. This is what is happening in practice. This allows us to stay still. It allows us to stay composed through the various ups and downs that we experience. Meditative effort is the effort to connect. It's the effort to be mindful. Allowing experiences to come and go, and recognizing that happiness does not lie in any one experience. Lasting happiness does not lie in phenomena or in experience. So allowing experiences to come and to go, resting within, resting in this inner island, this inner refuge, this inner home. With wise effort, make for yourself an island which no flood can overwhelm. This is what is happening in practice, whether we are aware of it or not. Actually, you don't have to be aware of that, because it happens quite naturally. I'm just uh, ending with a quote from Suzuki Roshi. Even though waves arise, the essence of your mind is pure. It is just like clear water with a few waves. Actually, water always has waves. Waves are the practice of the water. Well, when I was reflecting on this earlier, I was trying to kind of put the metaphors together, you know, the island and the waves and this and that, but I couldn't quite get there. But (laughs) I think they're both, um, (laughs) both very beautiful ways of talking about practice. Okay, so let's just sit for a moment together.